recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Krista Getting a Saturdays. Today is Saturday, December 7th, 2013, a day that surely has lived in infamy. Tonight we're going to produce Explaining 2C Line, Pragmatic Genesis, Part 9. First, I'd like to say that I'm sorry that the quality of the audio in TalkShoe is is not that great. If um, the people in TalkShoe would, as one person already suggested, mute the TalkShoe audio and, and load another tab and load Christogenia and listen to the program on the Christogenia audio stream, there are four streams. You, you could pick one, and, and, and I'm sure that you'll find that the audio is... A, a huge improvement. It's theoretically the four servers should be able to support 500 listeners. I know that it's not that good. I've seen them crash with, with half that on on, on one server. In in fact, I um I had somebody crashing my main server, the, the number one audio stream, on purpose, and and that went on for about three weeks until I finally took the time to sit here and watch my IP traffic so I could ban that that, that person and, and um, keep them off my server. Now it's been up for about four days straight with no with, with no trouble. That that's um and any internet service is susceptible to being screwed with and and I get more than my share of um, adversaries in, in that regard also. Tonight I have Sword Brethren here once again, and, and we're going to discuss Pragmatic Genesis Part 9. We're going to discuss Genesis, um, well, we're going to talk a little about the Flood, like we did last week, and and, um, and the Genesis 6 events, just to summarize a few things, to clean up a few things, because I screwed one thing up last week. It, it's not any big thing, but, but we'll get to it momentarily. And, and we're going to move on to Genesis chapters... Um, 10 and 11, and, and and speak about them, well, well, from a general sense and from, from a two-seed line sense. Hello, Brian. Greetings. Thank you Hello. for being here. How are you tonight, Phil? Thank you for having me here. Wonderful. Praise Yahweh. Let me say one more thing before we roll this program. Next week is, um, I'm going to do call-in programs for two straight evenings. I'm going Friday, Friday and Saturday, and I hope that there's some participation. Otherwise, there won't be much of a program. I haven't. I used to do open forum programs every Monday night. I did them for over a year and a half. I also did a Euro forum, which was basically an open forum, on Thursday afternoons twice a month, and I did that for almost, a, for, for at least a year and probably a little longer, that the, um, so, some of the open forum programs on Monday nights were, were pretty successful, even when they were moved from TalkShoe to the Christogenia chat server, which we still have a Christogenia chat server, and, and, and some of them were pretty successful, and, and some of them weren't as successful. Some of those open forum programs have, um, the, the topical ones that I did ha- have 17,000, 18,000 downloads, especially um, when, when I was when I was 
making demonstrations of scripture in response to my, my um, one-time radio partner. Uh, I won't mention his name because nobody knows his real name. That That's a joke, right? My, my one-time radio partner, when, when I was making responses to him, that those open forum programs are the most popular, it seems that people, of course love controversy. It, it's incredible. People complain about controversy on one hand, and they love it and eat it up on the other, because my, my, my all of my programs at Christagenia, the, the, um, the, there's a few pretty popular ones, the Judas Goats with Carolyn Yeager on the Saxon Messenger site that's got practically 30,000 downloads. That There's a few other programs that approach that, but, but it seems that the programs I did that were um, embroiled in controversy or, or, or addressing controversies in Christian identity, they're, they're the most popular. It, it, I don't know why that the, um, you, you, you could go and check Jeremiah 31, Beast, Sheep, and Goat Nations has, has almost 20,000 downloads. So, Bill, just so we're on the same page, you're referring to your one-time partner who now has been exposed and he's, um, well, well right, right, right. Right, he's exposed himself. He he's in he he's actually a member of the other seed line, that those right. other white people <laughs> that we would call tares. That the um no no it's just that I, I'm just trying to explain that the the programs I did that were 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 were, were um focused on certain controversies. I, I don't know why they're the most popular. I don't think they're the best programs, but they're they're the most popular. I don't know. I, I can't figure it out. People like to hear hot-button issues addressed. I guess. I don't know. They like to hear arguments, and, and they like to hear... I don't know. I don't I don't get it. it it's, um to me, the more important programs are the Bible studies and, and the things that I do on Friday nights. I don't... Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe a lot of people just find them boring and pedantic. I, I get that idea, too, but that's okay. Anyway, next weekend I'll be doing call-in programs for two evenings. I won't suffer trolls. I, I know there, that there will be trolls. I'm, I'm sure that, that um, certain Jewish clowns from southwest Missouri might, might try to get in or, or, or a couple other people. I'm not going to suffer trolls, people with agendas. I'll answer any honest question, have any honest and open discussion. I've always been for that. That's what my open forum programs were about for a year and a half. And and, um, and a lot of people came, and, and some of them left happy, and some of them left mad. And that's just the way it is. Pragmatic Genesis, Part Nine. I would like to I, I would like to um, tie up a, a few loose ends from two weeks ago when when we did Part Eight. In our last segment, we basically digressed at length in order to summarize many of the things we said in the first seven segments concerning the first five chapters of Genesis. I prefer not to go back there tonight. I think we've already beat a lot of those issues to death. If I ever hear anybody say that there are two creations of Adam, I just want to strangle them. It, it, it's insane. We summarize many of the things that we said concerning the nature and the identification of Satan in Scripture and history, and, and we'll do that at even greater length, I think, when we get past the Genesis portion of this two-seed-line presentation and, and into the prophetic books, the New Testament. 
We also summarized many of the things we said concerning the singular creation of Adamic man and the facts the fact of because it is a fact it it should be indisputable by now I don't know how people don't get it and, and the reasons for recapitulation in what we call today the book of Genesis we then discussed at length Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 4 and explained that the phrase sons of God should be emended to sons of heaven and, and that's from not only the Alexandrian manuscript but also from the, the um, Enoch literature which is found in the Dead Sea, Dead sea Scrolls and other sources. And we offered our reasons for doing that along with evidence from those ancient manuscripts. Now, now we had discussed last, well, two weeks ago, we had discussed the difference between the codices Vaticanus and Alexandrinus in the Septuagint in that respect, because the Codex Vaticanus has sons of God, like the Masoretic text does, but the Codex Alexandrinus has angels of God. And I admitted not knowing the reading of the Codex Sinaiticus in that regard in, the, in, in Part 8 of Pragmatic Genesis, and I didn't know it while I went and looked in preparation for this program. And, and um, nothing from the first 20 chapters of Genesis exists in the Codex Sinaiticus. Now, now I know there are other ancient codices that, that, that I could take the time to check, and, and perhaps one day I will. But as far as I'm concerned, of all the great uncles, and, and, and which represent the, the oldest manuscripts of the, well, well the oldest known manuscripts of the Christian tradition that have, <coughs> excuse me, that, that have the Old Testament as well as the New, either in Greek or Hebrew, the, the Sinaiticus, the Vaticanus, and, and the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus are the two most important manuscripts of the tr Christian tradition. And I believe that as a translator of the New Testament, that they are the two most reliable now, the Codex Alexandrinus, the Alexandrian tradition, has its critics, and those criticisms are deserved, but it's not wrong all the time. It's simply not. It, it's, um, it, it, it also is worthy of note and investigation, and, and let's leave it at that. Last well, well, in the last segment, I did make one mistake, and, and it was only I was only speculating anyway. But yet, you know, I I don't really um, I, I I've read a lot of material from Greek from, from pagan Greek literature and from the Sumerian manuscripts and the Babylonian manuscripts. And when it comes to gods and goddesses, I always just kind of blow over that stuff when when it talks about their 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 traits, their characteristics that their um their supposed abilities i always kind of blew over that stuff what when reading all of the greek poets and 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 the inscriptions because to me it's simply all it, it's all horse manure to put it in to use a euphemism it, it's all horse manure but but enlil i i um i had um speculated was a female deity and and actually I was wrong Enlil Enlil is a male deity and and his supposed wife was named Ninlil 
So, so it, it's easy to confuse some of those Sumerian and Akkadian and, and even the later Greek gods and goddesses. If um, I mean, I'm sure that there's people that play fantasy games that they could probably run circles around me with, with that stuff. But when I read the poets, I never cared about that stuff, right? I, I just Bill, you, you should you should be ashamed of yourself. <clears throat> Where's your scholarship? Making an error that great? Yeah, yeah, right. Well, well, that's okay. It, it's not the last time I'll do it. Uh, I'm more concerned in in the um. I'm more concerned in the nature of the myths and how they relate to the Old Testament and, more importantly than that, in the actual historical material which can be found in the inscriptions and, and in the Greek poets and, and the Roman poets and other ancient writings. That's the stuff I've always focused on. That's the stuff that's important, right? Even in, in, in Homer and Hesiod, even though a lot of these things are myths, they're fantastic tales of, of the deeds of heroes and like Heracles and, and, and their gods, there's still a lot of history in them. And, and a lot of the history, well, while practically all the history is absolutely valid, all of the history is repeated, all of the history and... and, and um, ethnology that we find in Homer is repeated centuries later throughout the, the actual prose historians. <clears throat> so, so uh, I mean, it's, it's and, and is verified in inscriptions and, and many other archaeological sources. So, so the historia, the historia, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I can't even pronounce the word, right? And the historicity? The, yeah, yeah, the history, the, the historicity, the historical parts of the poets are extremely important, and they're extremely important for, for the primary reason that the linear prose historians, that the first one that's, that survives is Herodotus, who, who didn't write until 430, perhaps, 440, 430 BC in, in that period, and, and Thucydides, which follows him by a generation, and, and Thucydides, he, he felt, he despised Herodotus because Herodotus repeated some of the myths. But Herodotus, I think his despite for Herodotus is unfair because Herodotus admitted that he didn't believe all the stuff he wrote, but he felt that it was his duty to report everything that he had learned and was told. So, so I, I respect and admire Herodotus, and I think that Thucydides, Thucydides is basically a stick in the mud. And, and, and I have other criticisms of him too, but he himself does deserve respect as a historian. There's no doubt. With all that aside... Of the arguments, and, and we discussed this at length two weeks ago, of the arguments on the nature of the flood of Noah, many of those which insist that the entire planet was flooded are ridiculous. And, and they're ridiculous, and we're not going to address them here. I'm more concerned. This is pragmatic genesis. We should use the Bible because we're Christians. We should use the Bible to figure out the scope of the flood, and, and and simply from the Bible, all the other arguments of man are basically sophistry. 
I am more than familiar with the points made by men such as Henry Morris. Hen Henry Morris is, is um, so, some sort of creationist institute. He, he insists on a, the King James 6,000-year-old um, earth, yeah, you know, based on the King James oh. chronology of the Bible. And, and King James only? Well, well, oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm familiar with the points which Henry Morris makes in, in under the guise of science, and, and I think the man's a clown, and, and I think that the other young earth creationists are clowns. I think their arguments are ridiculous. They can all be answered from a scientific viewpoint. The bottom line, however, is that the Bible proves that the flood did not cover the entire planet simply because... Genesis chapter 15 lists peoples who survived the flood who were not on the Ark of Noah. If the young earthers insist that they were, then they put God himself into a state of irreconcilable conflict. When you're referring to, you know, people who survived the flood, I assume you're talking about the Kenites. Well, well the Kenites, the Rephaim, right, Exactly. Explain, you know, as we said two weeks ago, Yahweh God isn't going to choose Noah and his family because they are perfect in their generations and then compromise that perfection by putting Kenites and Rephaim on the, on the, on the ark with Noah. I, I mean, that's absolutely absurd. Their image is here. Noah, you're perfect in your generation. Build an ark. Oh, the rest are coming on the ark with you. Right. It, it's 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 an absurd idea. It's it's an addition and and an innovation on scripture to imagine that that's how we can account for the, the Kenites and Rephaim. And, and we, we, we had brought up the Targums and how early that innovation is. It goes all the way back to the to, to the Targum of Pseudo-Jonathan, which dates to at least, uh, off the top of my head, I believe it dates to the 2nd century A.D. It, it may be the 1st century, but I think it's the 2nd. That, that it's generally dated to. I could be wrong on that. that. That's just what I vaguely remember. I read that Targum um, many years ago. That Now, now probably 14. I, I don't remember. I, I honestly don't. It was a long time ago. That the, um, what we had brought up, the fact that, that the Targum Jonathan accounts for the giants surviving the flood by putting Agabeshan on the roof of the ark. And that's, you know, that's another misconception which is based on the, the Masoretic Text chronology. The Masoretic Text chronology, we should all see that as our enemy. The Masoretic Text chronology has led people into more biblical error than possibly any other facet of what we know as the modern Bible. But Bill, if Agabashan was, say, about as tall as Goliath, he would have weighed around 700 pounds. Wouldn't Noah have realized there was something on top of the other? Agabashan, well, well, right, and and that's the whole story is ridiculous, right? But but um, the the real uh, another real hurdle is that if Agabashan was on the roof of the ark, he would have had to live about 2,800 years to make war with Joshua and, and the Israelites in the conquest of Canaan. Not even Adam lived that long. 
In fact, I'm yeah. You know, thinking about it, it's not 2,800 years. It's really like, yeah, it's about 2,900 years. I think. Well, we have to get from like 3,300 BC to um to, to 1450 BC, maybe. Right. And who did Og of Bashan mate with? Then, if it's just Noah, Noah's immediate family, and then there's Og of Bashan on the roof of the ark. The story is absurd. It, it's right. It's rabbinical nonsense. But they had to um, that they had to account for the existence of Aga Bashan, and, and we're going to talk about that at, at a little greater length here in in momentarily. But they had to account for the existence of Aga Bashan, and, and and being silly enough to imagine that the flood of Noah covered the entire planet or, or, or all of existence, however they perceived existence at that time. I, I mean, there were two schools of thought on, on, on the, the, um, the shape of the earth at that time. There was the Aristotelian thought, school of thought which believed the earth was flat, and then there was Aristosthenes, whom Strabo followed, who understood that the earth was a spear. A spear, not a circle, a spear. There's a he understood that the earth was a spear. He understood it in, in the 4th century B.C., I think, or maybe the 3rd. It, 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 it's um, the, the, not all of the ancients believed the earth was flat. The, the Catholics just adopted the wrong philosophical model. The... the um, The the desire to account for the existence of these people that they that they basically admit that Agabashan couldn't have come from the race of Noah so so how did he survive the flood if the flood covered the whole earth however well, they perceived the earth to be right the simple explanation is the flood didn't cover the whole earth and Agabashan was part of a people who weren't affected by the flood exactly and that's why we have refame all over the place and 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 that's the next thing I want to bring up. In our last segment, we spoke of the Kenites and the Rephaim, which existed after the flood, and how they were the descendants of Cain, along with the remnant of the Genesis 6 giants. Now, I want to head off some of the critics. Last week, I read Deuteronomy 3.11. I'm sorry, not last week, but what, two weeks ago when we did the last segment of this program. I read Deuteronomy 3.11, which states in part, For only Og of Bashan remained of the remnant of the giants. Behold, his bedstead was a bedstead of iron. Is it not in Rabath of the children of Ammon? <clears throat> now, this, even though on the surface, the surface reader of the Bible might say, See, Og of Bashan was the only giant left in the whole world because it, it says only Og of Bashan was remained of the remnant of the giants. This does not mean that Og was the only giant left in the entire world. And, and Brian, I'm aware of the typos in the notes I sent you. I'm sorry. Right. We had discussed Goliath and his extended family who were mentioned in the books of Samuel and in Chronicles. And we explained how they too were giants, that they were the sons of Rapha, and, and the word Rapha means giant. But the scope of the context of the passage in Deuteronomy 3.11 is limited 
to the places being spoken about at that time. Og was the only giant left in the land of the Ammonites. Now, this isn't conjecture. The text of Joshua chapter 12, verse 4, supports the contention where it offers a clarification. And it states, And the coast of Og, king of Bashan, which was of the remnant of the giants that dwelt at Ashtaroth and at Edrai. So we see that in Deuteronomy 3.11, when it refers to Og, king of Bashan, being the only giant left, it's speaking of that area where Og of Bashan was from. There were clearly other Rephaim among the Philistines as mercenaries and, and elsewhere in, in, in the wider world. So, so but when we study the scripture, we always have to consider the scope of the scripture and look for clues that help us in, in, in that endeavor. I'm sorry. But we are told, too, that David and his mighty men went around slaying as many giants as they could come across. Well, well right, and, and that record's in Chronicles, right? And, and it's, clear, right, so it, it's clear in, in later in the invasion of Canaan that there were other giants, that the children of Israel fell like grasshoppers and, and things like that, well, which is an exaggeration. It's a poetic statement and, and not necessarily to be taken literal. I want to comment again on, on Genesis 6-9, and, and um, that there were some questions in the Christogenia forum, and, and I really haven't had time for the forum. I, I have to apologize a little bit that, that um, I've been away from the forum, but I'm, I'm only, I only have two eyes and two hands, and, and the eyes aren't so good. Genesis 6-9, that this came up, that this... Um, one of the forum members raised a question about this word door, and, and he, it, it, he he wasn't making a contention. He, he was basically um, supporting what, what I had said from the Septuagint two weeks ago, but I, I want to clarify something. These are the generations of Noah. Now, that word generations is the word toledah, right? And it means descent. This is the descent of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Now, now I understand that Strong's has Toledah for that second word, generations, there also, but the other Hebrew manuscripts I've checked have the word door. Now, now door, I believe, and, and I'm fully persuaded, it's already in my, my English from Hebrew paper, which I wrote and posted on Christogenia many years ago, Door, the Hebrew word, is the origin of English words like endured and duration through the Latin verb durare. And, and, and durare has a very similar meaning, to endure, to last, to abide, to remain. I, I forget offhand, I don't have my Latin dictionary ha handy, so I'm doing this from memory. However... The, the Latin word durare and the English words duration and door and, and similar words definitely come from the Hebrew word endor or, or door, and, and that's my assertion. They all have the same meanings. The word door, not to be confused with the city on the coast of the land of Manasseh from which came the Dorian Greeks. We're not talking about them. We're talking about the word door. 
a noun in Hebrew, Strong's number 1755, is a habitation or a dwelling. However, it's spelled exactly the same. It's really the same word and just a different part of speech as Strong's number 1752. And Strong's number 1752 is a verb which means to remain. So Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. Well, well that's an interpretation of that word which was based on the Septuagint. And the Septuagint translators who, who knew Hebrew, I'm sorry, my, my, my dog is barking. The, the Septuagint translators who translated the Hebrew into Greek, they took that word door and translated it as genea, which literally means race. And even if you want to imagine that genea can mean generation, it means the generation of a particular race. It can't be separated from its basic idea. However, in the Septuagint, it's also singular in that in in, in that place. So so it it certainly can't be separated from the idea of race. Why would a door have a relationship to a race? Now, I, I know that some commentators want to limit the word to, to the idea of a cycle or, or a period of time, right? And, and even though the most basic meaning of the word is related to a, a cycle or a revolving or a revolution, and, and for that reason it means a staying or an abiding, well, it means a staying or an abiding, and by extension, a habitation or a dwelling. Because if you are a staying of something, if you are an abiding of something, that means that you are of the same nature as things of the same type which, which preceded you. If you're an abiding, you're not... A departure from something. Do, do you see what I mean? If you're an abiding of something, if you're perfect in your abiding or perfect in your remaining, well then, that means that you've kept your race pure. That's the only way that could be related to people is that you are a remainder of the type that you were created. That's how I look at the use of that word, and that's why Noah was perfect in his race. It, it's, um, if you're a remaining of something, how could a man be a remaining of something? Well, well if everybody else, as we have in the context of Genesis chapter 6, if everybody else, all other flesh had been corrupted, all flesh had corrupted its way upon the earth, and Noah was a remaining, he was perfect in his remaining, or his abiding, which is what the word means, well, then that means that he was flesh, 
that had not corrupted its way upon the earth, and that's why Noah was chosen. Because Noah's, Noah and his family were pure in their race. So whether you want to look at the word door or the word toledah, they're basically saying the same thing. Noah was perfect in his descent. And that's, that. there's nothing else that, you can't be perfect in your dwelling, what, what, your house is clean? Is that what that means? How would the evangelicals explain that away? <clears throat> well, well, they can't explain that away. That They ignore all these little um, details of scripture and they make their own stories up. They do it time and again. They do it time and again. They can't explain these things. From here, we should probably go to a discussion, and, and I'm not going to talk about the details of the flood. That they, They're really irrelevant to, to seed line, except that we have people who were not on Noah's Ark who survived the flood, and, and we're going to talk about them in the next phase of, of this psalm. We've spoken about them once already. We're going to talk about them again in the next phase of this presentation probably the week after next, two weeks from now, I, I pray, Yahweh willing, we should probably talk first about the differences in the Masoretic text chronology and the Septuagint chronology. Because the Masoretic text chronology, the ages and the births of the patriarchs, and, and I'm going to post a link in, in both chat rooms and, and for the people that, that are... Um, going to listen to this later on, on the podcast, I will post links to these pages, to the resources that we're going to use for the balance of this presentation. I will post links when I post this podcast on Christogenia. That the, um, the, the, well, well Clifton Emmeheiser wrote, it, it's not really an essay or an article, it, it's just a comparison, and, and it's basically charts, and, and he did this eight or nine years ago, it's been a while, it, it's been on his website for four years now, at, at least, it, it's called Patriarchal Chronology, and it, it, it simply shows the differences in the ages of the patriarchs and when their sons were born. And there's a total discrepancy of 1,486 years. And, and, and some of that discrepancy is after the flood, but almost all of it is before the flood. And when you compare the Septuagint and the Masoretic text, if you had... Um, if, if you had, and, and we cannot calculate these dates perfectly, don't get me wrong, the, the Bible chronologies cannot, that there are questions and there are ambiguities, not, not from before the flood, but from after the flood, which make for a lot of problems in, in arriving at an exact chronology especially around the time of Eli and the judges, and, and there's a few other ambiguities in the judges' period. And, and we have the, the um, reckonings of Paul and, and some of the later writers to help us, but th there are ambiguities that cause problems in arriving at, a, at an exact chronology. It's never going to be arrived at. And, and I have um, 
my, my notes on this are still in New York, my own notes, but I, I have voluminous notes trying to arrive at a chronology and, and do better than Bishop Usher, and, and that's when I realized that it, it, it just can't be done. It, 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 we, there were questions raised that, that make for, um, for, for lapses, for, for short lapses of time, and, and that there are also missing, <clears throat> and, and this could be demonstrated there, that there are missing patriarchs. If you go, that there, there are probably, probably, off the top of my head, I discussed this somewhere on my website, that there are um, maybe six generations to eight generations in the time of the captivity in Egypt, and then from the time of the Exodus all the way down to the time of Obed, who is David's grandfather, there's only about five generations, maybe six generations in the line of Judah. In that period, which is explicitly said to be 450 years, there were definitely um, lapses in the genealogical record in that period, and, and it's without a doubt, so we don't have all the answers. This 1486-year discrepancy it is basically, um, I, I don't know, Brian, I'm hogging all the airtime. I don't know if you have anything to say. Just please pipe up. Well, what would be the motivation for the writers of the Masoretic texts to subtract these years? What purpose does it serve on their part? Well, well, there was a writer in Clifton quotes him in his, in, in his little um, chart here. Clifton says that, and, and I've read this in sources myself, right? Clifton says that Ephraim the Syrian, who, who was a Christian writer from, the, from, a, from about the 3rd century A.D., that he claimed that the Jews <coughs> were toying with the, the ages of the, of the patriarchs in, in, in their biblical texts because they believed... That, that they could um, convince people from, from their Kabbalistic numerology that Christ could not have been the Messiah. <coughs> that they were attempting to, to um, show that he was not the Messiah by, by toying with the numbers. The, the numbers, we, we don't need the, the numbers to prove that Christ was the Messiah. I mean, let's... Let's get real. What we do, um, the testimony of the book of Daniel and the dating between, um, the, the dating of the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, that does go a long way to prove that Christ is the, the Messiah, who the Old Testament prophets had, had foretold of and who, who they expected. There's no doubt. But we don't need those numbers to prove that he was the Messiah. But Ephraim the Syrian said that the Jews were, were playing with the chronology and, 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 and perverting it so that they could somehow deny that he was the Messiah. So I don't, I don't know about that. I wasn't there, right? And, and I don't have any second or third witnesses to that. But that is in keeping with what they would do. Well, well it's in keeping with the manuscripts. When, when you look at the Septuagint manuscripts and, and the Masoretic text manuscripts, there is a 1486-year discrepancy. Now, when you follow the Septuagint chronology, you can arrive at a flood date of perhaps 3245 BC and and no later 
when you follow the Masoretic text chronology, you arrive at a flood date of perhaps 2345 BC. 900 years of that 1486 years is before the flood, right? And when you look at ancient history and the inscriptions and the things that we can, well, we can't know them perfectly, but we can pretty much ascertain the time of Abraham, the, the time of Isaac and Jacob by counting backwards through, through, the, through the Bible, and, and we can ascertain their time, and, and we can compare the world of, of um, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to the ancient inscriptions and, and, and take those ancient inscriptions, a whole body of literature from Egypt, another whole body of literature from, from the Assyrians, from the Akkadians, from the Sumerians. We could take that literature and, and we know that there were kings and cities from these Genesis 10 nations in 3000 BC. The, the Masoretic text flood date is absolutely incredulous. The Masoretic text chronology, when compared with history, doesn't hold up for 10 minutes. It, it's terrible. It, it, you cannot believe um, what we can tell from history, from inscriptions. Uh, I'm not talking about from guesses by archaeologists. I mean the, the, the things that we can tell from inscriptions and from our written records. The, the Masoretic text chronology, the, the 4,000 year date for, for the creation of Adam, 4,000 BC, is ridiculous. The 2345 flood date is ridiculous. And, and when you look at the charts, Clifton made some, some, some charts of numbers, and, and I was able to put them on his website in, in graphs. When you look at the graphs, in the Masoretic text chronology, at the time of Abraham, every single patriarch back to Shem is still alive when Abraham is born. That's not possible. It's not possible, and the biblical, the scriptural record does not support that scenario. Not one iota. When you look at the Septuagint chronology, even though some men lived a very long time, you have a much more natural progression of the, the births and the deaths of the patriarchs. And, and, and there were only, um, only Terah, Abraham's father, was alive at the time that he was born. His grandfather, Nahor, had, had, had uh, either was just about to die or had died very recently. And this is all available on, in, in Clifton's paper, uh, along with charts showing the years that, that each of the patriarchs was, um, how many years his father was when, when he was born and, and, and when, his next, when the next son was born, how old he was and, and how long he lived. And you could determine a chronology from that and, and a flood date of perhaps 3245 B.C. That now, is that date ideal? Well, well it's damn close to ideal. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the civilization of the pharaohs in Egypt arose by some accounts right around that time and by other accounts just a couple of hundred years after that time. It, it depends on <clears throat> none of the... 
none of the archaeologists and the historians, none of their accounts agree perfectly, but the Septuagint chronology and the Septuagint flood date, which results from that chronology, are very much in tune with and, and a lot closer to the reality of Mesopotamian and Egyptian history, that there's no doubt, and scriptural history, there's no doubt. We have to use the Septuagint flood date if we want any degree of credibility, not not to the world, but, but to anyone who seriously investigates history and archaeology. What we can't use the Masoretic text chronology is ridiculous. It, it's absurd. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm highly disappointed, and I've been highly disappointed for, for many years, because Bertrand Compré and Wesley Swift followed the Masoretic text flood and, and, and flood date and the Masoretic text chronology. And, and that's how you, you, you arrive at ridiculous that this Mrs. Sidney Bristow and, and her identification with Cain being Sargon the, the Great that's absolutely ridiculous. That's absolutely incredible. But she was able to make that mistake by taking for granted the Masoretic chronology was correct. And, and it's not even anywhere as close to correct. So, so there's, a, there's a lot of um, problems with the Masoretic chronology. Now, I'm not saying that we throw away the Masoretic text. We need the Masoretic text because we need to see as best as we can a lot of the Hebrew words behind what, what the Greek Septuagint was. The Greek Septuagint is translated from, from a Hellenistic perspective and, and they took a lot of names and, and that's where they did the most damage and translated them as they thought they should be from their Hellenistic perspective. And, and I, I don't care how, how many times you want to make the assertion, it's simply not true that Phoenicians are Canaanites. Not now, right. the, the, Phoenici the people inhabiting Phoenicia at the time that the Septuagint was translated, yeah, most of them were Canaanites. But the ancient Phoenicians that the, the scripture refers to they weren't Canaanites, but that's one serious mistake that the Septuagint translators made was taking that for granted. Just like today people take for granted that the Jews are Judah. So, Bill, will there ever be a Christogenia Old Testament? Probably not. There, I, I pray that one day I can, I can translate the Greek of, of um, some of the wisdom books in, in, in the Apocrypha and the, the Psalms and the Proverbs, and, and I see value in that. I don't see value in, in my sitting down and making a, a, an English translation of the Septuagint text of Genesis because it's not going to add a whole lot to our body of knowledge Be, because the Septuagint manuscripts are just as bad in many respects, in, in my opinion, as the, the the Masoretic text of the King James, but one place the Septuagint is of great advantage is it 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 has um, the Septuagint has a lot of readings that are much better than the King James, 
and and we can use the Septuagint and value it in comparison. And, and the Dead Sea Scrolls, more more often than not, when there are differences, the Hebrew of the Dead Sea Scrolls supports the Septuagint over the King James. But the Septuagint we have today is far from perfect. And, and I, I don't, to me, I don't see that, that I could add a lot of value to our English understanding by translating a, a manuscript that's far from perfect. So, so I, I don't, I, I may um, do some of the wisdom books. Some of the prophets are, are attractive, but it, it's also a huge endeavor. So I, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to to do it. So, but but to do the historical books, I really don't see the value in it. I don't see how I could do much better than Brenton in order to make it worth it. I, I don't know. Brenton Brenton made a lot of mistakes in some of those wisdom books, and I could prove that. And and, and a lot of it's unfortunate, and and um, that that's why I have my sights set on them. I, I think he really probably rushed the wisdom books of the Apocrypha. And perhaps that's why he made the mistakes. I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. But but I have a list of very badly translated passages. I'm not here to criticize Brenton. The, the Septuagint has a lot of value. And, and I did a podcast about four years ago called What is the Bible? It, it's at Christagenia. And I give my comments at, at length and, and my opinions at length on the value of all of the um, ancient sources, and my assertion should what well, my assertion would be the same today as it was then. We need them all. We need all the witnesses that we could get in many respects. Josephus is very valuable, even though his early chapters are basically interpretations that the Pharisees had and and to me they represent the leaven of the Pharisees in part but but Josephus's historical work is very valuable he fills in a lot of gaps in 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 the um in the historical books of scripture and so does the Septuagint fill in gaps in the historical books of scripture that are missing from the Masoretic text and and, and make clarifications that are wanting in the Masoretic text so so they're very important but the Masoretic text is always important is also important because we get to see at least some semblance of what the underlying Hebrew was. And, and it's clear to me that Josephus had a better copy of the Hebrew than the Masoretic text. He had a much better copy. I, I wish we could have his copy of the Hebrew, but we don't. The Septuagint chronology is very important because the Septuagint chronology is reconcilable with history, as we know ancient history fr from... The, the, the ancient writers, and from the Bible, and from the inscriptions. The Masoretic text chronology cannot be reconciled to history, and, and it and and it borders, it borders on the ridiculous. The, the Masoretic text chronology is horrible. Now, the Septuagint chronology puts the the, the creation of Adam, or, or at least from 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 the time that um right right it puts the creation of Adam at about. 5400 BC perhaps and that's closer to, to even what mainstream theoreticians 
identify with the rise of agriculture and things like that. That the um, I understand that they that they attribute that back as far as 10,000 BC, and we're going to talk about some of those things. I pray very shortly, but um, the Septuagint chronology is mostly a lot more credible when we look at the Genesis 10 table of nations, and when we look at the rise of those nations and their appearance in archaeology. And the Masoretic text is absolutely discredited in that facet. And that's the important facet. The rise of those Genesis 10 nations before the beginning of the 3rd millennium BC it is, is um, absolutely necessary in order to better understand history and 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 the archaeo the archaeology and the inscriptions. So All right. Are we going to get into Genesis 10 right now? Would you like me to begin? Yeah, yeah, we don't have to read my Genesis. We could read Genesis chapter 10. I'd rather not read my entire Genesis 10 paper. My my race of Genesis 10 paper is is what I would refer people to for an understanding of, of the nations of Genesis chapter 10 and their nature, I wrote it in prison probably, I don't know, nine, ten years ago. But but I, I didn't have all the, because of I wrote it in prison, I didn't have all of the resources I would have liked. If I had the time, I hope one day to, to rewrite it and, and, and to do a much more thorough job. But my point in my paper, The Race of Genesis, chapter 10, and I think the paper makes that point, even though my resources were limited, I, I had a, a, a whole collection of the classics at my hand, uh, at hand, and and a, and a few other resources. But but I think it makes the point that all of those nations that can be identified with in in history, most of them can be identified in history, and all the nations that can be identified in history, they were all white. They they were all white. That there, you cannot find a Chinaman in Genesis chapter 10. You can't find a Latin American squat monster or a sub-Saharan ape in Genesis chapter 10. And, and that's important to understand. And it's important all identity Christians should be able to read Genesis chapter 10 from the King James Version Bible and say, I know who those people are. I know who those people are. I know who those people are. And, and in that manner, you can shut down any Judeo-Christian clown that tries to say that niggers, chinks, and spicks can be found in Genesis chapter 10. It's that simple. They can't. They can't be found there. They won't be found there. And it's sad enough that we have to debate Judeo-Christians about this issue, but now we have people who are allegedly CI. We have to debate and counter their assertions that all these beast peoples are in Genesis 10. Well, well right. That, that's, that there are some people that have that idea that there are non-whites in Genesis 10. It's absolutely ridiculous. And, and yes, sometimes those ideas are dragged into Christian identity by... by um, People with denominational baggage. Denominational baggage is our biggest enemy, next to the next to the um, the, the errors in in Masoretic text chronology and things like that. But but 
all of these people were white, and it could be easily demonstrated that all of these people were white to anybody that understands classical history. The problem is that very few of us read it. Any identity Christian should be able to read down the list of nations in Genesis chapter 10. They can't all be identified, but the ones that can be, we should be able to say who they are so that we can demonstrate that there were white nations that sprang from Japheth, there were white nations that sprang from Shem, and there were white nations that sprang from Ham. So so that kind of a, blows the whole cat, Roman Catholic lie concerning Genesis chapter 10, which all of these denominations now repeat, it blows it right out of the water. You know, myths are often created, and I could probably, if I wanted to make this the purpose of some of my writing, elucidate this to a great extent in the Greek poets. Myths are often created for political purposes. And this is as old as time. I could show you Egyptian inscriptions. Egyptian inscriptions from the 3rd millennium BC that basically demonstrate that the earliest Egyptians had an attitude. When I say 3rd millennium, I'm talking about before 2000 BC. That the early Egyptians had an attitude that non-Egyptians were not even people. That was their attitude. They did not consider non-Egyptians to be people. So they didn't recognize them as people. They were beasts. They were animals. Only Egyptians were people. Well, I could show you Egyptian inscriptions from about 500 years later from, from the, the, the United Kingdom when Egypt became an empire. And those inscriptions say that the same God created men of all colors. And we see that from the time Egyptian was a nation, Egypt was what was a nation in the midst of aliens, and, and then to the time that Egypt became an empire because it conquered those aliens, we see a radical change in their mythology. And that change in mythology existed to facilitate diversity. So... so that idea is certainly not new to modern Jews. It's not new to modern social studies, if you want to put it that way. This, that this changing of myths and religions to facilitate diversity, it is, without doubt, 4,000 years old, and probably older than that. It probably goes all the way to hell back to Genesis chapter 6. But we don't have all the details, do we? You want to talk about Genesis chapter 10 and the table of nations. That This is important. It's important that Christian identity, that the identity Christians be able to simply just pick these out and, and understand who these people are. Oh. So what do you say to people who claim that Ham was black? Yeah, you know, if I slept with my wife and she got pregnant and a white kid came out, and then I did it again and a black kid came out, I'm not sleeping with her a third time, right? <laughs> it's not happening. 
If Japeth comes out and he's Asian and, and he's yellow and has slanted eyes, Ham's not going to exist, right? Well, let's put it this way. In, in, the, um, if, in the biblical days, if, if Jacob goes to bed with his wife and comes out half black, then Jacob put his wife to death. Well, well, right. If if Noah was perfect in his generations, if he was perfect in his descent, that then how could he produce children of mixed races or, or different what races? The, what about the idea then that Ham was white but then was turned black? What do you say that at? Well, well, you, you know, that's true of Ham if you want to consider the word Ham to mean the man and all his descendants. They turned black because eventually, over time, they were all race mixed. And that can be established in Scripture. However, to say that Ham himself was magically turned into a black man, it is absurd. Right. It's absurd. And, and, and many of Ham's descendants can be clearly can clearly be demonstrated to be white. Even the, the, the Philistines, right? The, the Philistines, who we know very well from, from Egyptian inscriptions, there's no doubt the Philistines are considered Aryan by, by most of today's anthropologists. And the Bible has the Philistines being descended from Mitzrayim. Now, if we're Christians, we should believe our Bible we should understand that the Philistines came from Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim is the word for Egypt. Wherever Egypt appears in the Old Testament, the word is Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim was the son of Ham, and the Philistines are the easiest Hamites to, to demonstrate were white. Uh, I mean, we could do it with the Egyptians too all day, but there's tons of, of inscriptions and, and and there's tons of of, um, of anthropological evidence. I mean, pharaohs were dug out of the ground, and they had white skin, and they had red hair, right? And and, and there there were plenty of works of art. That there's um, a plethora of artwork on on Christagenia from from Egypt, which demonstrably without doubt shows that the earliest Egyptians were white and the further back you go in Egyptian history the whiter they get it's there's no doubt the Egyptians were white but the Philistines all modern anthropologists that I've ever read admit that they're white and and try to say that they came from the Asian area that they came from what we would know as Thrace or, or, or Macedonia, that they came from that area and settled in the Levant. They tried to say that because that's how they could account for white people being in the Levant in, in the time of Abraham. But, well, that's the only way they have to do that because they don't believe that the Hebrews and the Egyptians and all the rest of these people were white. They laugh. The, the, the mainstream academics just laugh at this. And, and but, well, it's, it's a damn shame. And, and, and they actually fly in the face of, of, of all ancient histories. So, so the idea that Ham was black, well, you, you'd think his descendants should be black. The, the Philistines came from Mitzrayim, and they were absolutely white. And, and that's just the easiest way to show, to, to, to pierce that, that bubble, as, as far as I'm concerned.
to anybody that knows anything about ancient history, they, they can't admit that the Philistines were black. The Philistines were clearly white. You're saying the Philistines weren't even a branch of Canaan? They were white? No, no the Philistines weren't weren't Canaanites. They were white, and, and they were Mitzrayim. They were from Egypt. <clears throat> and they were in Canaan at, at, at the, in the days of Abraham. They were actually in Canaan. I was under the impression, you know, in Asian Christianity, the Philistines were Canaanite. No, no, the Philistines weren't Canaanites. In fact, the, the um, it, it can be demonstrated that the Philistines couldn't have been Canaanites from the book of Zechariah. What, where Zechariah, where Yahweh makes a prophecy in the book of Zechariah stating that, and, and it's stated as a punishment for the Philistines, right? Stating that a bastard shall live, meaning future tense, in Ashdod. Okay, well, if a bastard, and, and if Zechariah, Zechariah is actually a second temple prophet. He's not a first temple prophet. Zechariah wrote his prophecy after, uh, I'm fairly certain he wrote it, him and, and Malachi. They wrote after the time of Zerubbabel and the return fr from Babylon. And, and that, that's a, he's a 5th century B.C. prophet who prophecies that a bastard shall live in the future in Ashdod. Well, well of course, that, that, that was um, basically fulfilled when Arabs overran the entire area. However, that demonstrates that the people in Ashdod at that time, or, or at least the, the, the multitude of them, were not bastards. Or, or else what would be the value of that prophecy as a punishment against the Philistines? Right. So, so the Philistines were not bastards. Yes, there were Canaanites among the Philistines. There were Canaanites all over the place. There were tares all over Palestine. Bill, correct me if I'm wrong. If we went back in time, say, 3,000, 4,000 years ago, the Levant, if we were wandering around the Levant, we'd see people that look like ourselves. We'd fit in. Well, well yes. Modern white people would, would, would modern... Um, Aryan white people, not all white people are white, right? Modern Aryans would definitely fit into ancient Palestine. Uh, I mean, we'd probably get thrown out because we were retarded, because what well, we only speak one language and 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 are brainwashed by Jewish television. Not not no, we would fit in. Ancient Palestinians would fit right into um any northern European city. Oh, I'm sorry, they're all under Sharia law now. That they're all Arab cities now. I forgot. That they they would fit into any high school in Idaho or Montana, maybe I, I don't know where where do white people live now. Uh, I'm being sarcastic, but no, they were all white. They were all white at that time. Even the Canaanites were white. The Canaanites had to be white. They were the descendants of Canaan, and and, and that that they well that they could surely be spotted by custom, by dress, by language, and and a preponderance of them had to be. Right, but you're Very saying they were, the, white. they were the sons of Cain and not the sons of Cain. Very white in, in appearance. The Kenites had to be white in appearance. They had to be. I mean, white by today's standards, where we have a lot of mixing at the edges of society, and there's a lot of people that really aren't white, even though they appear to be white. I'm sure the situation was the same in ancient Canaan. I'm sure the situation was exactly the same in ancient Palestine. It hasn't changed. In fact, I would say that the Jews 
who, who were Edomites and Canaanites 2,000 years ago, are probably more mixed today with, with all of the exposure they've had to Negroes, to Arabs, to Amerindians, to, to Orientals. They're more mixed today than, than they probably were 2,000 years ago. I, I would sort of bet on that. Well, globalization has brought that about, hasn't it? Well, well, the, the um, when the Jews were driven out of the Byzantine Empire, a lot of them went to Arabia. They mixed with the Arabs. A lot of them went to um, Khazaria. They mixed with the Turks, who who were invading the Eurasia from from the east. That they um, that they they mixed with with. The, the, they're the original race mixers. They mixed with all the races that were um, interacting with, with the edges of, of what used to be white society. Right, and not only did they mix with the Turks, but they brought the Turks down upon the Byzantine Empire. Well, with well yes, they did. Yes, they did. But but that's why I'm certain the Jews are probably, that their blood is more mixed with disparate entities now than it probably was 2,000 years ago. Right, that's why the National Socialists called them a counter-race. Well, let's just read down this list of nations in, in, in um, Genesis chapter 10, and, and, and we'll right. discuss some of these peoples. It, it's important to to have a basic idea of, of who these people are. Should I start at the top of Genesis 10, or just get to the part where the nations are listed? Well, well, just start at the top of Genesis. Let's start at the top of Genesis 10. Now, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and unto them were sons born after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Javan, and Tubal, and Meshech, and Tiras, and the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, and Rapath, and Togermach, and the sons of Javan, Elisha, and Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanum. Now, now let, let, let me um, talk about the Japhethites. Well, when you look at the, the, the end of the um, well, when you look at the end of the, the section on Japheth in Genesis 10, Genesis chapter 10, verse 5, they're the only ones out of Shem, Ham, and Japheth who, who, where it says that by these were the isles of the nations. I'm not going to use that term, Gentiles. By these were the isles of the nations divided. And, and, and that's repeated later in Scripture. And there are many times in Scripture when Javan, especially, is associated with sea trade, with Tyre, what with the city of Tyre, and 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 several other times in Scripture. There's no doubt that J the Japhethites were to inhabit the coastlands, the maritime regions of, of the Adamic Oikumene or the Adamic dwelling place when it was divided. The um, the sons of Japheth. Gomer, that, that name disappears in history. I understand that many later, and, and Josephus made this error, and it's certainly an error. I understand that many later 
commentators try to associate Gomer with the Cimmerians, and, and that is wrong. The Cimmerians are the Cymri of the Akkadian inscriptions, and they are certainly captive children of Israel. Gomer is an error made by commentators who do not understand who the Cymri are in, in the Syrian inscriptions. Well, Josephus didn't really have access to Assyrian inscriptions 700 years after Nineveh fell. The, the, um, Gomer is mentioned later in the Bible, but disappears in history and, and really can't be identified except that it's conjectured that, that he inhabited some region in northern Anatolia. That now, um, Magog, the land of Magog, what we can only guess at the location of, and I won't do that here tonight. I've talked about it at length in my Christ Strike series, in, in my Revelation series. But Mad Eye is with all certainty, as can be proven by taking these names and following them through the books of the prophets. Madai belongs to, to the people that we know as the Medes. And Javan, and the Persians called them Yavana, Javan, and, and it's I-O-U-A-N I -O -U -A -N in the Septuagint, but it's Yavana in the Behistun Rock and other Persian inscriptions. Javan represents the Ionian Greeks. And the Greeks aren't one nation. The Greeks are several disparate tribes, Ionians, Dorians, Danans. They did not have near kinship and origination with one another. The Dorians and the Danans actually came from, that they were Israelites, and, and that's established in, in papers on Christogenia. It's beyond the scope of this discussion. Javan, they're the Ionian Greeks. So we have the Medes, the Ionian Greeks, Tubal and Meshech, those names are very similar to the names of the Moskoi and the Tabarni. And, and, and those people are known by Herodotus to be living in northern, what we would know as far northern Syria, just below the Caucasus Mountains, on the coast of the Black Sea, before 500 B.C., and they can be identified with these people, these Japhethites on the coast of the Black Sea. And ostensibly, and Diodorus Siculus gets into it a little where he says that the Scythians had later forced a lot of those original inhabitants of that area to move, to relocate north of the Caucasus. And he actually states that the, the Scythians had brought Assyrians and, and other and Medes and other peoples and enslaved them and sent them north of the Caucasus. And, and it's not incredible to see those names identified with places in Russia, in what we know as Russia today, later in history. That's not incredible at all, once you understand that the Scythians had forced a lot of those tribes north of the Caucasus. That now... The names Gomer and Ashkenaz and, and Togarma and, and Ritha is actually Diptha. It's spelled with a D. There's a D-R confusion from Hebrew to other languages. It's very glaring in, the, in, in many places in the Septuagint. The, the, um, 
these names are mentioned later on in the prophecies and these people must have existed in the days of Isaiah and the later prophets however they can't really be associated with particular nations in the archaic period from from the Greek and and Roman and other ancient writings that they just don't have that association you can't look at Gomer and say oh that that that's this country over here or Ashkenaz is that country over there that these things that the um the, the center of historical writing at the time what was in the Levant and didn't move until to Greece un, until un, until like 400 and something BC that the um the Persians left us very few inscriptions relatively these people are really like just outside of of the historic the, the history recording parts of society they appear in the prophets and and they may appear in diverse inscriptions here and there I, I don't remember reading about any of these in inscriptions though Gomer Ashkenaz Togarma but that they are mentioned in the prophets and the peoples must be known to the prophets and they seem to be in, in that in and around that land of Magog that not a land of Magog seems to be the region around the Caspian Sea and, and that's where um, Khazaria later comes from and that's how Magog is tied to um, prophecies concerning the Khazar Jews in, in the Revelation and, and in some of the other prophetic books in, in Ezekiel so, so the, the land of Magog seems to be around the Caspian Sea but there's no definite identification like there is with with Medai, Tubal, Meshech, and Javan. Now the sons of Javan, Elisha, that word, that name appears in Cyprus in the most ancient times. And Tarshish is absolutely, and, and we know this from, from later scriptures, Tarshish is absolutely Tartessus in southern Spain. And, and that's not incredible if, if the, the Japhethites can make it to Ionia and, and on to Greece. It's not incredible that they could make it to Spain. And, and um, Kinnon... Tarshish is near Cordoba, isn't it, in Spain? Yes, it, it's it's on the Mediterranean. It's the Mediterranean quarter of southern Spain. That The um, Kittim is also a name that... that is tied to Cyprus in ancient inscriptions and in ancient history and and all the way up to the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and Kittim Cyprus was divided in those days it, it multiple tribes lived there Alisha and Kittim are two of them later on it became um, property of and those tribes became subject to the Phoenicians who were the northern tribes of Israel Dodanum is another example of the D and R confusion from Hebrew to other languages. In the Septuagint, it's Rodanum, and, and it represents the, the, the Greeks of Rhodes, the, the original Japhethite Greeks of Rhodes, who, who are obviously related to and, and, and the descendants of Javan. So, so that's these people, these Japhethites, dwelt in the Isles of the Mediterranean, the coasts of southern Europe, and around the Black Sea.
Now, tiras, there's one more here. I'm, I'm sorry, I almost forgot tiras. T-I-R-A-S in the English of the King James. It's um, Strong's transliterates the word T-H-I-R-T-H-I-Y-R-A-C, and, and it's Thrace, the, the, the people of Tiras, the Japethites of the tribe of Tiras, are the Thracians. And there's, um, there's a definite etymological and, and linguistic link. So, so I, I don't have any problem identifying them as the Thracians. Who, did, who the Ionian Greeks considered to be barbarians, not because they didn't have culture, but because they didn't speak a, a similar language. In, in, um, in Hesiod... And in Prometheus, Prometheus, the famous play by um, by Aeschylus, Prometheus Bound, the father of Prometheus was said to be Iapetus, I-A-P-E-T-U-S, we would spell that in, in um, English. Iapetus is a word with no Greek meaning or, or derivation. And I'm certain that that I would link. I would be very confident to link Iapetus to to um, the tradition concerning Japheth. It, it's basically the same word. All right. And that appears in Greek writings right from the seventh century BC. So take it for what it's worth. The sons of um the sons of Ham. Alright. Yes, we're 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 done with um with, with JPath. Alright. And the sons of Ham, Cush and Mizram and Foot and Cain and and the sons of Cush, Seba and Havilah and Sabta and Rama. And Sabtaka, and the sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan, and Cush begat Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before Yahweh, wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod the mighty hunter before Yahweh. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalna, and the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Asher, and builded Nineveh in the city Rehoboth and Kala. And Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, the same as a great city. And Mizram begat Ludum and Anamim and Lahaban and Naphtahim. And Hathrushim and Kashlahim, out of whom came Philistim and Kaphtorim. And Canaan begat Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Girgasite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvidite, and the Zemarite, and the Hamathite, and afterward were the families of the Canaanites spread abroad. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as thou comest to Gerar, unto Gaza, as thou goest unto Sodom and Gomorrah, and 
Adma, and Zeboam, even unto Lasha. These are the sons of Ham after their families, after their tongues, in their countries, and in their nations. Well, well, first, Ham, right, right, we all know Ham was, he was a screw-up. Why did Ham screw up, and why did, why, why was Canaan cursed? That the, um... The Baptists, uh, I mean, Don Spears like to like to foist this one on me, and and well, we could use it against them. I don't agree with it, right? That this um, law of first mention, right? That they have this rule what, when they do biblical interpretation that that the first mention it is what explains something, and, and if Ham. If Ham got in trouble for um, seeing his father's nakedness, what did Ham do? And if we go by the law of first mention, the next time father's nakedness is mentioned is in Leviticus 18.8. And it says, The nakedness of thy father's wife shalt thou not uncover, it right, so is thy father's nakedness. It doesn't mean he saw his father coming out of the river after a bath. It means he had an inappropriate relation with one of his father's women, right? Well, well his father only had one wife at the time. There were only eight saved through the flood, and, and that father's wife had to be Ham's mother. There's no doubt about that if you want to adhere to Scripture. Uh, I mean, this is Genesis chapter 9. The waters had just resided, and they're the only eight Adamic people. And probably the only people in that immediate area, I'm certain, after such a horrible flood. I mean, the flood, even though it was a local flood, it was still almost certainly a disaster of great magnitude, which certainly affected all of the adjoining lands, I mean... Well, when there's a hurricane in, in the Gulf, I mean, one city might get it real bad, but all the other ones suffer along with it in, in that region, right? It, it's, um, I'm sure there were no, other, no others there at that particular time but these eight people. I mean, that's the picture that Scripture is, is, I believe, it's attempting to draw. And Ham sees his father's nakedness. And Leviticus 20.11 says, And the man that lieth, with his father's wife, has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Now, now that law came many centuries after Ham committed his act, but it tells us what Ham did. That's the only thing that explains why Noah would curse Canaan. There's no other explanation for why Noah would curse Canaan. He wouldn't curse Ham. He didn't curse Cush. He didn't curse Mitzrayim. He didn't curse Foot. Ham's other sons aren't cursed. Now, now it's apparent in later scripture that, that the Hamites uh, aren't treated well, like the Shemites are and, and the descendants of Eber and, and the chosen line. There's no doubt Hagar was tossed out and, and she was of Mitzrayim. And her son, what wasn't um, considered worthy uh, of the inheritance of Abraham, he, he he received some gifts and was told to get lost. 
it, it's evident that Ham wasn't going to have a part in the birthright. But these other sons of Ham weren't cursed, and, and they went on to found great nations which lasted for a very long time. The Cush, now, now Cush, wherever you see Ethiopia in the Old Testament, the underlying Hebrew word is Cush. And there were two Cushes in, in um in the ancient world, one Cush was below Egypt, and and that's what we know today is Ethiopia, but the other Cush was the land of Cush that Moses fled to that we later learn Saudi Arabia was a part of. And, and the explanation for that is that Nimrod founded this empire, which we see here in, in verse 8, Nimrod, from verse 8, Nimrod founded this empire. Well, Nimrod was a son of Cush. And the Hebrews called Nimrod's empire Cush. The Greeks, in all of the earliest Greek writing, this is right in the time of Homer, the Greeks, and, and Herodotus explains it, Herodotus mentions an Ethiopia of the East. And he also describes the Ethiopia to the south of Egypt. Now, there was a, an, an ancient hero of the Trojan War, and his name was Memnon to the Greeks. Homer called him Memnon, and he was supposedly a hero who fought on the side of the Trojans. Well, the founding of the city of Susa was attributed by the Greeks to this Memnon who fought in the Trojan War on the side of the Trojans. Now, Memnon was called, in all of the Greek poets, he was called Memnon the Ethiopian. So we see that the Greeks had an Ethiopia in the east. That city, Susa, which Memnon was accredited with founding, was the capital city of what was later the Persian Empire. It was the capital city of Persia. Now, we see that the Hebrews had two Cushes, the Greeks had two Ethiopias, and they correspond with one another. The earliest Greeks considered that land to the east, Mesopotamia, and beyond. They considered that to be Cush. I'm sorry, they considered that to be the Ethiopia of the east, and we see that Moses goes to Saudi Arabia, and that was land which was controlled at that time by what we would call the first Babylonian Empire. And that was considered the land of Cush by the Hebrews. It's right in the Exodus account. So we have two Cushes and two in, in Hebrew and two Ethiopias in Greek, and they line up with each other. They correspond with each other to, to a great degree. What we have is that the Greeks called the Empire of Nimrod, which modern historians would call the First Babylonian Empire. The Greeks called that the Ethiopia of the East, and the Hebrews called it Cush. And then we have what was ostensibly a colony settled by them, because if you look at the sea route, it's very close. The Horn of Africa is very close to ancient Babylon. And we have something, a, a country called Ethiopia, 
or Cush to the south of Egypt, off of that Horn of Africa. So, so it's it's obvious, and and it's long been obvious to me that that's a colony of, of the ancient empire of Cush in Mesopotamia, and that's why it was also called Cush by the Hebrews and Ethiopia by the Greeks. But the original Ethiopians were white. The word means sunburnt face. It doesn't mean black. It means shining face. If you look at the original Greek words, and this is explained at length in my paper, The Race of Genesis 10, Diodorus Siculus actually describes two different types of people in Ethiopia to the south of Egypt, and one type is cultured, and, and, and they're familiar with Greek literature, and they've, some of them have studied in Athens, and the other type are, he describes them as black savages with woolly hair and flat noses. And he has to be talking about Nubians. And he says that they have absolutely no redeeming qualities whatsoever, that they're absolute, he basically describes them as absolute savages. The quote at length is in my paper, The Race of Genesis 10 at Christagenia. So, so Cush represents, or Cush be, became real, it, it became a tangible entity with the empire of Nimrod, which we would call the first Babylonian empire. And that there should be little doubt about that. Now, foot, th this foot in Genesis 10.6 is, um, seems to be associated with what the Greeks knew as Libya in, in, in some of the later prophets. Foot is mentioned, I believe, in Ezekiel and maybe perhaps in Jeremiah also, and certainly seems to be associated with, with, with the, the western shores of, of Africa to, to the west of the land of Mitzrayim, which is Egypt. And everywhere in, in scripture where we see the word Egypt, the Hebrew word underlying it is Mitzrayim. Now, now that, that word Mitzrayim, a, a lot of people associate with the meaning of black earth, but that doesn't mean that Ham was black. That, that's only the name of one of his sons. Are you still with me? Yes. Now, now Seba and Havilah, Havilah can be established, and, and I discussed this when I talked about um, the, the rivers in, in um, the, the four rivers in, in Genesis chapter 2, right? That there was actually a river which crossed the Arabian Desert at one time. That can be demonstrated in, in today in, in, in archaeology. There's actually a lot of writing on it. And, and that river was one of those rivers which Moses described in Genesis chapter 2. And the land of Havilah seems to be um, a lush land at one time, right smack in the middle of what we now know as the Arabian Desert. Seba seems to be... Um, what, where modern Oman and Yemen are today, and, and the ancient kingdom of Sheba, that there has been some archaeology, some archaeological artifacts that support that. It's just that the landscape at that time was very different, and, and that area was a lot more fertile than it is today. Today it's a barren desert, but because Yahweh basically, if, if you read the books of the prophets, and what was to happen to all of these lands 
know that the Arab people today are the result of the curses upon all of these lands. And we'll get into that a little later on in this presentation on, on 2C line. So, so the empire of Nimrod is very real, and, and Cush is very real, and, and we can identify it in Exodus, and we can identify it as the Egypt, the Ethiopia, I'm sorry, of the East in, in the early Greek writings, that this is very real, but the um, modern archaeologists don't use those terms to describe those places. They use different terms. They use Babylonian Empire and, and, and um, uh, other terms to describe those nations. Asher is the, um, out of that went forth Asher. Asher was actually a son of Shem. He'll be mentioned later in, in, in this very chapter of Genesis. Asher was a son of Shem and, and the eponymous ancestor of the Assyrians. But evidently Nimrod, having founded an empire, Akkad, was actually, Akkad became the name, Akkad was the northern part of Mesopotamia, and Sumer was the southern part. Akkad became the, the um, principal city of the Assyrians and gave their language its name, Akkadian, in, in, later, right. in um, later history. Did Nimrod set himself up as contrary to God? Well, well all right. Well, well, let's go down this list because it's getting it, it's getting awfully close to the to the hour when we should be um, concluding this episode. Anyway, uh, I'm sorry about the interruption. We don't know what happened. Um, Brian and I were simply muted on TalkShoe. That the, the um, it seems that the Assyrians were early subjects of the empire of Nimrod, and, and that's why this description is that way, because by the time of Moses, by the time Moses wrote, Assyria was growing to be a pretty mighty nation. And Moses is writing, let, let's set an, an estimate of 1500 B.C., and Assyria is becoming an empire and, and, and replacing the, the old Hittite empire had fallen apart and, and, and the, um, the, there was the Mitanni kingdom and, and the Babylonian empire was on a decline and by 1300 BC Assyria was on the rise and, and it took 500 years for, for it to get big enough to, to um, invade Syria and and the land of Israel, but it was on the rise by the time of Moses. And Akkadian was already becoming the lingua franca of the Near East and, and trade and diplomacy by the time of Moses. The Greeks, the earliest Greeks, knew and, and were very familiar with the Akkadian language, and their diplomats and, and merchants spoke it and, and, and could read it. And, and it's actually mentioned several times in early Greek literature. The, the language of, of the Assyrians. The um, Nineveh became, in, in verse 12 became the capital city of Assyria. Mitzraim begat Ludim and Anamim and Lehabim and Naphtalim. Now, now I'm not going to get into the details. I, I have them listed somewhere. I don't remember where. But these names simply mean... Um, or, or, or have different meanings, which place them 
as regions or tribes that are in Egypt that they're all in Egypt and and it says and Casluhim out of whom came Philistine and Philistine is the name that all of these I am names don't represent individuals they represent tribes it's the plural construction in the Hebrew which the King James translators simply transliterated rather than translating and all of these are tribes and Philistine represents the Philistines the Philistines came from Egypt they came from Mitzrayim now we have the Canaanites described and Sidon was a prominent city and the Israelites never really drove all of the Canaanites out of Sidon and, and and that was a prominent city on the northern border of the coast of Asher, and and the, the Israelites that that's one of the cities that we're told explicitly, after the Israelites had taken over all that land, the Canaanites had remained in. Now Heth <coughs> lived in the land north of Sidon, on, on what we would consider the 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 border region between Turkey and Syria, practically right. That the ancient land of Carchemish in far western Anatolia, or, or far north, 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 I'm sorry, far eastern Anatolia, or far northwestern Syria. Now, now Heth is the eponymous ancestor of the of the Hittites. Carchemish was their um, was their capital city in historical times and in scripture, and and it's mentioned often in inscriptions. If you take that word Carchemish, right? You take that word and you break it down. Kar is a city in Hebrew, and Kem is the name Ham, and Ish means people. Kar Kem Ish, which is the name of the capital city of the Hittites, Kar Kem Ish can be said to mean city of the people of Ham. So, so it, it's uh, all of this is 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 right in history. You could see all of these tribes. I mean, not all of them, but a great number of them, right in history that's attainable from writings and, and inscriptions which we have today, what which have survived the last three to four thousand years. Now, now these, the, the, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, we know all these people from later scripture. All of these Canaanite tribes, for the most part, what we know from later scripture. Now, I don't know, sometimes I suspect that these are all tribal names or, or, or city town names, and, and like the Jebusites had dwelt in Jerusalem until the time of King David, who, who finally took the city from them. All of these names are known from Scripture. It, it's difficult to tell if Moses is actually telling us that these people are all Canaan's descendants, which would be fine, but because by the time of David, it, it's 2,300 years have elapsed. Canaan could certainly have that many descendants. Or if these are just places where, where other peoples dwelt, that the Canaanites took them over and, and mingled with them. It, it's There's several possibilities and some of these names don't appear in very many places in later scripture. Some of them, like the Zemurite and, and, and the Arvidite, 
only appear a couple of times or perhaps don't even appear again at all. The, the Girgashites are only mentioned, I think, twice, once here and once in Genesis chapter 15. And that, off the top of my head, I would say that might be it, that they might be the only two places that that name appears. So, so a lot of these people are obscure, and, and they're obscure because in, um, in, in the, the, the scripture, they're generally all referred to as Canaanites. In um in the Assyrian and and Babylonian inscriptions, very often they're simply referred to as Amorites, and, and all the Canaanite tribes and all the, even the Hebrews are referred to as Amorites in some inscriptions because that was like it, it's kind of like calling everybody that lives in the United States Americans, even though they're from many different races, or everybody that lives in France. Frenchmen, even though they're from several different races, that it's it's um it's a generalization that was made even in ancient times. So so that lends the confusion sometimes when comparing scripture to history and to the inscriptions. Now now the sons of Shem, Elam, everywhere you see the word Persia in the Old Testament, the English word is Elam. Elam is, and, and there was in in the Greek literature and in ancient inscriptions, the land w which was just east of Babylonia in Mesopotamia, that land was called Elamais by the Greeks, and that land is identified as Elam in many of the ancient inscriptions. It's right on the Persian Gulf on the northern end east of Mesopotamia, right smack in the middle of modern-day Iran. A and that actually was the original seat of the people of Elam, who became, eventually became what we know as the Persian Empire. Asher is the Assyrians, and Arphaxad cannot be identified. Arphaxad probably dwelt in far northern Syria, because that's the land that was called Padan Aram at the time of Abraham, which meant Plain of Aram. And that's the land that Abraham and had sent to for children. That's the land Abraham came from first, from the city of Haran. And second, that's the land Abraham sent back to when he wanted a wife for Isaac. And that's the land that Isaac sent Jacob to to find a wife to find his kinsman and find a wife. So we know where the land of Arphaxad is, but it was never a historical national entity in, in the records that we have, or in the scripture. Lud, the people of Lud are the Lydians of Anatolia, and that can be substantiated from Isaiah chapter chapter 66. There's um, should be little doubt from that that the Lud are the Lydians of Anatolia. The Lydians later gave birth to the Etruscans. The Etruscans in all ancient accounts came from the people of Lydia in Anatolia. Aram, everywhere in scripture where we see the word Syrian or Syria, the underlying word is Aram. So all of these people, the Shemites, the Japhethites, the Hamites, Plenty enough of them can be easily, well, once you're familiar with the names on the list, can be easily identified with white nations of antiquity. They were all white people. 
Are you still with me? Yes. Okay, because what pro- we should probably end this program here. I've probably run my mouth enough. Um, I, I don't know if you have anything you want to interject. Not right now. Well, well, it's it, it's basically nuts and bolts. It, it it's you you take these names, you follow them through the Bible, and, and or, or you follow them through inscriptions, and and they often appear in our literature, in ancient literature. All these people, uh, I mean, they can't all be identified, but all these tribes, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and and major components of their descendants certainly can be identified, and they're all white, and wherever. And this is the most important thing. These nations are listed for a damn good reason. Because whenever you see references to the nations in later scripture, you cannot take it outside of the context of these nations. You can't imagine that anything that says Gentiles or nations in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, and and on down the line, all the way through the scripture, you can't imagine that it could, could possibly refer to any people outside of this list. That's the context of the entire Bible. This is the book of the race or the generations of Adam. These nations are are we can verify their identity historically for good reason, and they're all white. They're all white. Now, now some of them you might want to say are marginally white, like the Canaanites mixed with Kenites and Rephaim. If they're not white today, it's only because they were mixed in later history. They mixed with other races, like the Ethiopians, the Egyptians, and, and, and the Canaanites, who were basically Arabs today. They all started out as white. They were all white people or damn close to being white people when Moses wrote this account. All of them. And they can and, and that can be substantiated. And the people that um that that try to find other races in Genesis chapter ten are are basically doing that based on presumptions and suppositions and they really don't know the substance of, of any of this. Whenever you see the nations in the rest of the Bible, you can't take it outside of this context. You can't squeeze non-whites into Genesis chapter 10. They're not there. Well, next week we will have two open forum structured calls. Next week we will, um, yes, open forums all next week. I'll take any callers, any honest callers. I'll take calls from any honest people, any honest inquirers, whether they disagree or not. I'll take their phone calls and 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 offer them an honest discussion. As for the trolls, the, the trolls can all go back to the yeshiva, and and and, <laughs> and that's where they belong. That they can all, all right. that so they're not going to be entertained. Trolls will not be entertained that. next week. When we return from the open forum, will we be continuing with Genesis? Um, well, well, yeah, I think it will be necessary to continue with Genesis. I, I really do want to continue with Martin Luther, but, but the first program after the open forum week should, should probably discuss the um, some of the interim history and, and, and get a good idea of the chronology 
uh, of these uh, this table of nations and the Tower of Babel event and when that could have happened and, and the call of Abraham. Because a lot of people don't realize, even though we had the Tower of Babel event shortly after the, the, the sons of Noah and, and, and in Genesis chapter 11, and then we have the call of Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 12, there, there is an interim period of at least 1,300 years, which we don't have any account for in the Bible. 1,300 years between the flood and the call of Abraham in the Septuagint chronology. And that goes very well with history, where the Masoretic text, the, the, the difference is only about 400 years. And that's just ridiculous compared to history. Okay, well, we'll, we'll, um, we'll, we'll end this here. Yahweh bless. Thank you for listening, everybody. And, and we'll return with this series in two weeks. Call Abraham. Praise See you Friday. Yahweh. Good night.